You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. My lesson this morning is entitled The Power of True Faith. The Power of True Faith. When you talk about faith, especially in religious connotation, you're talking about a confidence in something. And so by that definition or that idea, uh, we could describe the faith of an atheist. Someone might say, well, atheists don't have faith. They believe in atheism, and they believe there is no God, and they believe that they are the center of their world and universe, and they are the ones that make their decisions for how to live their life. They have faith. They just don't have the faith of God in God. There's denominational faith, there's cultic faith, there's strong faith, weak faith, dead faith, dying faith, the faith, perfect faith, imperfect faith, and on and on we could go about how to describe or talk about faith. But there's only one true faith that promises a hope of eternal life, and we get that information from the instructions that give us that faith in God's word. This morning, what I want to do is look at four different areas uh, concerning faith. What is true faith? What uh, power is in true faith? How is true faith demonstrated? And what does having true faith and putting God first have to do with each other? First, let's begin by looking at faith. Faith is trust in something that is trustworthy which will not change or betray, even though we may not always see the object of that faith. So it's something you can count on. When we look in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it says as as much, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Substance and evidence. Substance is something you can see or is tangible to you. Evidence is something that is tangible. But you have something that's substance. What is it? It's faith. What is it substance of? It's substance and represents something we don't see, something we can't touch, something that is, in this case, would be a future kind of thing or a thing that is out of our realm of human Uh, understanding and environment. Evidence to establish true faith is seen in past actions. Let's take, for example, an employer. He asks an employee to take on a task and assigns him that task. Chances are real good that employer has seen this employee do things in the past that have established the credibility of this employee. And so he is sending this employee out to do some kind of job. And in his mind, he has faith that he's going to get it done. It hasn't been done, so he hasn't seen the results of it yet, but he has confidence in that. One of the things that fascinates me in basketball is the no-look pass. That's an act of faith. It comes from evidence, though. When players play together and they practice together and they get in tune with one another, the basketball player doesn't have to look over there. He doesn't see the man that he's going to throw the ball to. He believes he's going to be there because the evidence of past experience says, if I throw the ball without looking, he'll be there and he will get it. That confidence. 
We do that quite often. We use this kind of, of uh, a confidence in things that are unseen, and we take it for granted that it is real. It is there even though I can't see it. So faith is only, as we talk about it, it's only as valuable as that in which it trusts. And let that soak in for just a moment. Our faith is only as valuable as that in which it trusts. Do you trust in God? Do you trust in his word? A person who trusts in God, then his faith is only as valuable as that word of God. If their religion is centered around more entertainment, more social concepts, more recreational activities, and this is the way their faith has been cultivated, then it's only as valuable as recreation and entertainment. Or if a faith is centered on those excited and aroused emotions in a setting where the environment caters to stirring up the religious or the spiritual emotions of a person, then the faith is only going to be as good as an emotion. So in looking at these three, obviously one of them has more stability, and that is God's word. If our faith is in God's word, then, I mean, if our trust is in God's word, then our faith will be as strong as what it trusts in, you see. So faith is going to be uh, determined by what we believe or what we put our trust in. What is true Bible faith? We talk about Bible faith, and let me get these other things that I didn't put up there out of the way and ask this question. What is true Bible faith? Well, it's trust in God through his revealed word. God does not expect anyone to have blind faith. And for someone to say, oh, you believe in a God and you cannot see him, and therefore you have a blind faith. Well, would God expect us to have a blind faith where we have no concept of what's going on? That like a blind person, they don't know what's out there just by looking at it? I don't believe so. But God has not given us a blind faith. And we look in Romans chapter 1 in verses 18 through 20. Romans chapter 1 in 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and uh, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's an interesting uh, collection of phrases here. In verse 20, for since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes are clearly seen. How do you clearly see an invisible thing? Well, there has to be something that makes sure that what you can't see is really there. And it is shown that it is really there, be it's understood by the things that are made. Something made these things in our universe, meaning there must be something there that I can't see, but it, it, it made these things. The evidence is there. So we trust in something we can't see based on evidence of the things that we, that we can see. Now, when we look at this passage of Scripture, we can see that the evidence is all around us that someone bigger than man, someone bigger than accident, someone bigger than the concept that there is no God, there has to be someone bigger than our universe to make these things happen. Things don't just happen by accident. 
And so there is an evidence that uh, there's a God and God created the heavens and the earth and God put these things in there and we can believe in that. But there's something lacking in that. I can believe in there is a God, but what does it take for me to, do, uh, to know what to do to be saved? I've never heard a tree talk. I've never heard the stars talk. I've never heard mountains talk. But that's God's creation. I can believe in God, but what must I do to please him? And that's where God comes along and gives us answers to those questions. He gives us a revelation. He created the universe. There is a God. But what does he want us to do? He's going to tell us what to do. And that, of course, directs us into the matter of a, a, a revelation from God. He provides, a, a provides what to believe in through that, through that uh, revelation. But he does not provide a person's faith. That is man's part. You see, most of the religions around who believe in Jesus Christ or that believe in Jesus Christ they are built upon the concept that man is born without the capacity to develop a faith, that they are born totally sin, totally uh, sinful, totally depraved, and that there has to be some mechanism that will give that sinner his faith. So consequently, they have to create a theory or an idea that in order for that person to know if they're going to be saved, the Holy Spirit has to give them that faith. It's a part of a system called Calvinism. And so man cannot come up with the faith. He's too deprived to do that, but God can do it through the Holy Spirit and give him that faith. But that's not what we read. Look in Romans chapter 10 and uh, verse, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do I get my faith? I've got to go to the word of God. I have to hear that word, I have to see that word, I have to know what the word is. That's what he's describing here. John chapter 20 and verses 30 through 31, at the concluding remarks of John's writing about the life of Jesus, he made this statement. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. People make a religion out of nature and say, I communicate with God in this way. But that's not how God communicates to mankind. God communicates to mankind through a revelation. That's what John was saying. These are written so you can believe. You can understand, you can believe and know what God wants. It's amazing to me, this passage always, I would say, boggles my mind because John makes a statement here that while we read the Gospels and Jesus performed this miracle and this miracle and raising this person who is dead, and how many thousands of times did that happen? I don't know. I don't know what the number is, but John said it couldn't write them down in, a, in the book. There's so many of them. So the evidence of Jesus was overwhelming in that time. And we shouldn't say, well, well, just those few things we read in the Gospels. No, it wasn't just that. John said there was a whole lot more, but we couldn't put it all together. In fact, in the end of the book, he says that if we were to put them together, the world couldn't hold the volumes of the events and the, the things that Jesus had performed. The Apostle Paul, in discussing some problems with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 
where these brethren had gone outside the limits of the revelation of God's word and started making up their own ideas about uh, how the church ought to be run or how their faith ought to be, he encourages them not to think beyond what is written. So the source of faith comes from writing and looking at writing and accepting the writing, not as being a deprived person waiting for the Spirit to do something to us. We have to exert ourselves in the things of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none, of you, no, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. What does he mean by that last statement there? Well, it helps explain the importance of not going beyond what is written. If I come up with an idea that is outside of what is written, I'm proud of that. I mean, it's my idea, and I think that that's the best idea. Well, my brother comes up with a different idea over here, and he's proud of that. It's his idea. So while they have these different ideas to try to get them together in unity, they will clash because they're proud of their own idea. So how are they ever going to get together as brethren? Shuck those ideas and not think beyond what is written. And when both of them are are thinking within what is written, they'll be together. It brings about unity. Well, see, that was the problem in Corinth. They were thinking things outside, and therefore it pitted them against each other, and they were puffed up with the pride of their own ideas, and that's because they thought beyond what is written. So Paul said what is written is what really creates that true faith. God is worthy worthy of complete trust. When we go to the Scriptures, we'll just look at a few this morning. In Psalm 33 and verse 4, The psalmist said, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. So we trust the word of God. Another place in Psalm 119 and 160, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So we're building a confidence in that word so that we can know that faith coming from that word is worthy. It It is true faith because it comes from a true God and a true revelation. God has revealed all that's necessary for a true faith, and we don't decide what to believe. Often people decide what they want to believe, and then they convince themselves that God told them that, and therefore God laid it on my heart, God told me these things, And they think that it is God talking to them and it's okay. And they believe in that and say, this is what God wants me to do. It's amazing how many people's religions originated from what they claim is God, but really it was an emotional yearning from within. They create a system or an idea of doctrine, convince themselves that God told them these things because the thought came into their mind. They don't give their mind credit for thinking things. And they say, God put this into my mind, and yet it's not something that God has revealed in his word. So you have a lot of people that will come up with faith, but we don't decide what to believe. We don't make up our mind and say, I want this to happen, and therefore this is what God wants me to think. We don't have that right. God decides what to believe, and that's what he's done, is revealed what he wants us to believe. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, in verse 29, It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, 
But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And what he's referring to, the words of this law are the things that are revealed. And there are a lot of things about God that he has not revealed. There are a lot of things about God that will keep us understanding he's greater than we are. But he has given us what we need to know as he's revealed it to us. And that belongs to us. That's our responsibility. And it also is eliminating the idea that I come up with my own idea of faith. It says it's his will. It's what he's revealed. In John chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16 on to 17, Jesus is about to be crucified. He has disciples that understand this is fixing, that's about to happen in the next short uh, time there. And they're concerned. They're worried. He says in the very beginning of chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. And then he says, I'm fixing to go away and I'm going to be preparing a place for you. That place he was talking about was not heaven. He was going to prepare the kingdom so that they could fill their place in that kingdom. And the rest of the three chapters after that are talking about that. I've got to go. I've got to prepare this place. I will send the Holy Spirit to you and you will fill your place that will teach the gospel to the world. Now, if you look in chapter 14 and verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And he will tell you things, to, uh, all said I, uh, things that I said to you. Let me get caught back up on the right notes here. Uh, all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. He was telling them he's going to go away. Well, that left them scared. But he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to tell you things to come. He's going to teach you the things that I have taught you. Bring to your remembrance all these things. You will be telling the things that God wants you to know and to tell others. So we can trust God's word. It is necessary for all things. And that's a key word. The question we can protract into is, did or did not the apostles obey this command? Well, I believe they did. Did or did not these apostles teach all things the Lord wanted them to teach? I believe they did. So if I go to what the apostles and the prophets wrote, I'll have all things, right? So what are later revelations all about? If you already have all that the Lord wants us to know, it must be something the Lord didn't want us to know or something the Lord did not produce. And so you've got all kinds of people believing all kinds of things, creating all kinds of organizations based on things that are beyond the all things that the apostles had already revealed in his word. In chapter 16 and verse 13, he's continuing this discussion with his apostles. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come the reliability of God's word. He'll give us everything we need in order to know what to believe. When the apostle Paul preached the gospel at Ephesus, he came to these brethren and came back through to visit with them. He met them at Miletus there and the elders came and joined him there. And he made this statement about what his work uh, involved. He said, how in verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. I gave you everything that was given to me. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Those brethren at, at, at Ephesus, they were given the whole counsel of God, the, the things that, that God wanted them to know. In Jude 3, it says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting, to you to, uh, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, that system of belief, that which God wanted mankind to believe, Jude says it was once for all and all time delivered uh, to the saints. So we have God's revealed word and in it is everything necessary to be saved. His sufficiency of the word, again, stressing this same idea, we see that his word is sufficient and it can create a sufficient faith. If the word of God is sufficient and I put my trust in that word, I will have a sufficient faith, an active faith according to the word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I can get from the scriptures all I need to please God and to do what I need to do to go to heaven. Everything is wrapped up in just a few words here. It's profitable for doctrine. That's that body of information that teaches us. It is profitable for reproof. The reproof, what does reproof mean? Well, the best way I can describe that is the word of God is profitable for getting on to us when we do wrong, reproving us. But it doesn't leave us there. It corrects us for correction. And it doesn't stop with just getting us out of the problem of doing wrong and correcting us to do right, but it instructs us or trains us and continues to teach us. So there's the doctrine. It tells us where we're wrong. It corrects us to make us right. And it teaches us to keep right. It's sufficient. It supplies everything. God's word is sufficient to create a sufficient faith. In James 1 in verse 25, it says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what, he's do what, he, what he does. And that brings us to something else about what we're talking about, God's word, and these preachers preached God's word. But God made sure that it was written down so it could be read for future generations so that we this morning could read and see what he wants us to know. Look with me, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul here is writing about the grace of God and how it was dispensed throughout the world. That grace, of course, being spread throughout the world involves the preaching of something throughout the world, and it would be the gospel. But in Ephesians chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1, Paul wrote, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, that expression simply means dispensing. We know what it means to dispense things. The spreading out of the dispensing of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. I was given this grace of God, this 
gospel teaching, and I taught you. I spread it to you. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his holy, uh, holy uh, by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So he said that I have given you these things. I have written them down so that you can read these things. And that's what we have. We have the writings of Paul so we could understand the mystery. A person who says that, oh, the, the, the plan of God or salvation is too mysterious to understand. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. Why not just go and read what was written? That's what Paul said. When you read it, you can understand it. When you read it, you can know what God wants you to do. And so he's describing the fact that we go from the revelation to preachers. These preachers spoke it. These preachers wrote it down for posterity. And now it is, it is handy for us to know what God wants us to do. And one other passage I want to look at, and that's 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 15 says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And don't be thrown off by the word traditions here. Tradition just simply means something that has been passed down from generation to generation or person to person. That's all it means. Now, you can have a tradition that's not according to God's word, and it can be passed down, and therefore that is a wrong tradition. Or you can have the tradition of having passed down that word as uh, the Apostle Paul preached it and wrote it, and it would be a good tradition. So he said the traditions here, and he's referring to the truth that had been passed on to you, that same truth, that you were taught whether by word, and I take it by contrast, the epistle, meaning by preaching or by letters, or by writing. So the word is written down. We have access to it. If we do not have full faith or true faith, it may likely be because we have not spent time seeing what the Bible says, because it's written there, and our faith is a mirror of that as we put our trust in it. Now, because God's word is more powerful than Satan's devices, everything we see in the scriptures here, Faith that is based on it will be more powerful than temptation and sin. So now we've established the word of God is trustworthy. And we've established if we put our faith in that, then our faith is going to reflect the power of that. And so as we talk about the power of God's word to defeat Satan, if my faith is in the word of God, then my faith will be able to defeat Satan when I'm tempted by others, by, by the world or by sin. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Romans chapter uh, 16 or chapter 1 in verse 16. We read where God's word is supreme. Romans 1 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it, the gospel, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then the Hebrew writer said over in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, of the power of the word of God. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a lot of power there. 
And this is what he's saying about the word of God and his power. His word can defeat anything that Satan can throw at the Christian. In Galatians chapter 6, in verses 10 through 16, we have the armor text. The pieces of armor that are seen in that context there. Putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And if you look very closely at each piece of armor, all of them take their way back to the revelation or the teaching of God's word. That's the equipping power of that armor, the various pieces, the sword, the helmet, and all of that to defeat Satan. The word of God has that power. It will work. So when we trust in this power, we have the power to overcome any trial or temptation. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or 10 in verse 13, in chapter 10, Paul is talking about how the Israelites came out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, and they were following Moses, who was leading more than just simply people, but he was leading in the plan of God, that plan having and involving in extension Christ. Ultimately, that's where all of their efforts and work in the Old Testament events were leading up to Christ. But of course, there were those who did not do what was right. They were tempted into idolatry. They were tempted into immorality. They were drawn away in all of these different places when they had the law of God that told them, don't do these things. And so they had the way to get away from sin by the explanation in God's law that was given on Mount Sinai. And so he comes to chapter 10 and verse 13 with that in mind. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, the first reading of this some will have is simply, that means that I will never be tempted beyond what I'm able, because God won't allow that to happen. Now, that may be more a toleration than my friend over here, and he won't allow that one to be tempted beyond what they are able, and they are not as able as I am in this area. And so I don't have to worry about it, and, and God would never allow anybody or anything to tempt me beyond what I'm able. That's not what it's teaching at all. If you look at what he just wrote, these people were tempted and they committed sin. What was God doing? Did he fall down on the job? He didn't prevent them from idolatry the golden calf and all the other things they did. He didn't, tempt, uh, he didn't uh, prevent or, or, or keep them from being tempted by immorality. And so he says this, no temptation uh, is to overtaken us. We don't get caught up in temptation that overtakes us, except it's common to everybody. Everybody faces the same thing. Who will, uh, he will not, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. How, Lord? With the temptation will also be a way, may, uh, uh, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So the temptation comes, and it's going to get us if we don't take the way of escape. So there's something about the escape mechanism that we need to know about. Some say, God's not going to let the temptation come to me. No, it'll come, because it's common to all man. So the way of escape, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And kind of build a little bit about this, why, uh, this idea of the way of escape. We note this about that context in 1 Corinthians 10. 
The way of escape for those Israelites was do the law of Moses. Don't do idolatry. Don't do immorality. The law says don't do those things. That's the way of escape. They just chose not to grab it. They chose not to follow it. The Hebrew writer indicates such. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall, we, how shall we escape if we neglect the greatest salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his word. What was the escape here? How shall we escape? We've been given the word. It's the explanation of how to face temptation. How are we going to escape those temptations uh, if, we, if we give up obedience and, and give up the word itself? Uh, talking about this word, the word spoken through angels and every transgression. How shall we escape if we neglect that word? So what is it that caused the Israelites to go into sin? They neglected the escape. What is it that's going to allow us to go into sin and we commit sin? We neglect the escape. Well, what's going to keep us from being tempted beyond what we're able? What this idea of able is, we equip ourselves so that we are able to withstand the temptation. But we have to equip ourselves. It's not some miraculous limitation of our inner genetic something or other, but rather... It is the idea we take the way of escape or we don't take the way of escape. And that determines how one is tempted. But true faith, the benefits, true benefits only, uh, it benefits those who are obedient to those things. All the trust in the world in God and his word can't help us unless we're willing to act on what his word tells us to do. Oh, I believe in God's word, and I've talked to people. Maybe you have too. Uh, maybe you've thought this way. I don't know. But I've talked to people, and they say, oh, yes, I love Jesus, and I love God. And I, but, uh, but, but I just still don't want to give up sin. In other words, you don't want to do what the Lord says, but you claim to believe in God. You claim to believe in Jesus. True faith will see what is to be believed and do what is believed. If it states for us to obey, that's a proof of our, of our faith. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in verse 11, 2 Thessalonians 1:11, it says, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Something about faith is working here. It is a work of faith. Galatians 5, 5 and 6 says, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of, the righteousness, of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. That's how true faith uh, works in a person. There has to be obedience tied to it. James 2 verses 1, uh, 14 through 20. And I'll not take time. Our time's getting away quickly. But James 2, 14 through 20 talks about the faith without works, that faith without works is dead. Gives an illustration of Abraham and gives an illustration of uh, Rahab, the harlot. I almost forgot uh, the one that was used in that illustration. But it was the idea that faith without action is, is not valuable, it's not powerful. 
However, practicing true faith is going to create something. It's going to cause us to run into conflict as a Christian. So now the challenge is, will I be willing to sacrifice? Will I be willing to sacrifice to make God first in my faith? And this separates real Christians from those who are playing Christians. Putting God first in everything in our life. We talk about having true faith. This brings us to the most challenging part of our lesson. And that is God must come first. We must put God first. And that should be no surprise. Let's look in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 through 14. Enter in the narrow gate for wide is the, uh, for broad is the way <coughs> that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So there's no surprise that there's going to be more people not putting God first than those who put God first. Uh, the Lord just makes it clear in the statement in the, on the Sermon on the Mount. And then we find Peter and John who were put into prison in Acts chapter 4 and verses 16 through 20. They are put in prison. These men, the, the, the officials didn't know what to do with them. Here was an opportunity when they were committed into prison for them to deny teaching the gospel of Christ or rather to refuse or quit preaching the gospel of Christ. Uh, it would have been a lot easier to get along with them. But you see, they put God first and they were willing to take a stand. And they said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. God comes first. Even though they were in conflict, they understood that God was more important. Christians often have the reputation for being spoken against. We can look at issues of our society today. I remember back in 2015 when the gay issues came along and there was even in the governmental political circles the official statements being made that everything like that is acceptable. But the plea was we just want to be accepted. We just, we just want people to accept us. Once they were emboldened by the government uh, uh, condoning homosexual marriages and so forth, then they said, we demand that you accept us. Now they had somebody behind them. And so that's a conflict with those who hold fast to the faith of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12, it says, but you have carefully followed my, disciple, uh, this, my doctrine, a manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering. Let me get caught up here. 2 Timothy 3, 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch in Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter speaks of that in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 3 through 4 about spending a past lifetime and living a corrupt life. And now they think it's strange that you are living differently than the way you used to live. You lived and, and lived a riotous life with them. You quit that and now you're strange. You are in conflict with those that are around. Trials will test the courage that we have. How much courage do we have? True faith is the seed of godly courage. 
anyone taking a stand is going to face opposition from somewhere. And this is what defines courage. The principle of courage is defined and elevated by how well we stand against that conflict. Being a faithful Christian, it's real easy to do when things are going well. Society has opposed drinking. They're opposed to immorality. The church is taking a stand. Brethren are getting along. Oh, I've got a good, strong faith. Well, that's good. And those things are pleasant to have. But what about when the challenges come? Let me talk about the challenges that one would face. Let me get down here to that point. Looking at the various obstacles that we would face. I'm trying to squeeze it in in the time we don't have left. All right. I think I can work up to this point here. When things are going well, faith is easy. What about when it goes wrong? What about when society says drinking's okay, immorality is okay? What about our faith then? And then what about our faith when there is a pressure to conform? Or being accepted means go to the dances or in, engage in other kinds of immoral conduct. Where, where being able to get a good business deal means I got to go dine and wine somebody and drink with them and, and I'll get their good side and I'll get a good business deal. When the pressure is there to accept the gay rights, to accept the LGBTQIAPK plus agenda, when that pressure is around us, what are we going to do? How is our faith going to stand up? Or the conflict between playing in a ball game or doing homework or attending some kind of entertainment and going to worship services. What about those kinds of conflicts? Where's our faith in? Is God first then? Or discontented brother disgraces the church of God, the local church. What is my faith then? Is it going to be strong to oppose the error he's promoting and to deal with him in such a way as that? You see, our faith is designed to handle all of these things if our faith is strong enough to handle them. So true faith is a faith that is grounded and can deal with whatever may come along. Now, looking at the effects of uh, faith, I had to start with Psalm 27 and verse 3. It says, though an army may encamp against me, the psalmist was confident his faith would get him through. My heart shall not fear. Though war should rise up against me in this, I will be confident. Psalm 46 and verse 2, it says, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, that he would not, he will uh, not fear those things. In Psalm 56 and verse 4, In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? And we find other passages like Psalm 116 that talks about what can man do to me. And then Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. And so his faith was designed to handle that. Brethren of the first century faced many trials, but they, had it, they faced it with joy. And the reason they faced it with joy is because their faith was so grounded that no matter what came their way, they would survive and always come up on top. 
they would be able to please God in the choices they made. My brethren, count it joy when you fall into various trials. You know what some Christians do? They go along with a faith, and that faith is challenged, and they panic and give it up. They say, well, I tried to do this, but how much did you try? Let patience have its perfect work. Sometimes things take a while. We don't just throw our hands up at the first challenge of our faith. We go back at it with the word of God and we patiently handle it. And we may never resolve the problem, but we will have been patiently letting our faith work and held on to our own conviction. And that's what true faith will do for us. It'll make us stronger. It'll cause us to proclaim the gospel with greater boldness. Matthew chapter 5, 13 You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You take a stand that others can look at and see that truth. The greatest attribute of a Christian's faith is how it arises in the occasion when things are not going well, even to the point of death. Revelation 2.10, maybe you've heard it several times. To be faithful unto death and you will receive a crown of life. Let me put a point up here and just reminisce or or rather uh, think about this. How can some Christians expect to die for their faith when they can't even choose to attend worship services because of some enticement of the world? What kind of faith is that? Well, it's not true faith. Uh, That is why there is no power in that kind of faith to defeat that temptation. Uh, It's too often that those that have this kind of faith uh, will not endure. They'll give up. True faith will be strong in the words of God. Bring our lesson to a close. Trials are natural to Christians when we put God first in our life. It's going to come. I think of nothing, I can think of nothing better to cause a hungering for going to heaven than to escape the trials of this earth. But I cannot go to heaven unless I have that true faith. So to be able to have that blessing and be able to yearn for heaven, I must also be doing what I'm supposed to do. To gain that, we need to exercise the power of faith at all costs. Thank you for your patience. I'm sorry I rushed through that last part, but you got the outline and you can go home and study it and, uh, and look those things up a little more. I appreciate your attention this morning. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.